Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and beaming out across all of space and time, this is Star Talk, where science and pop culture collide. New York Comic Con. We're back. Star Talk. <laughs> All right, we're gonna, we're gonna do some Comic Con stuff tonight. I promise you that this, this theme for this evening is the science of pop fiction, and we have. Two scientists, myself included, and from the Star Talk stable of experts, we have our resident geek in chief. I'll introduce him in just a moment. But first, let me get my co host, Chuck Nice. Chuck, come on out here. <laughs> Love you, man. Love you too, man. All right, Chuck Nice, go take a seat. And next up, we have a friend and colleague. He's an astrophysicist at the CUNY system based in Staten Island. Come on up, Charles Liu. Charles. <laughs> Charles, what was that about? <laughs> I'm just so excited to be at Comic-Con. New York Comic-Con is the best. It really, really is. Yeah. All right. Comic-Con rocks, man. So, so we've got three segments. The first one will be devoted to the topic of fictional elements. Ooh. There. What does that even mean? Well, mm. like antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, hydrogen, and oxygen, nitrogen, rhenium. Those are real elements. Oh. Yeah, we're talking about fictional elements. Oh, oh right. look at oh, that. Someone oh. right away. <laughs> look. So, so Charles, right, you didn't win anything, man. Sit down. <laughs> so, Charles, what role do fictional elements play in the world of comics? Fundamentally, of course, there are only a certain number of elements. Like, even if you count the ones that we have been able to create in the laboratory, 100, 120, 120-something, right? But we always that have... That means to... everything in the universe is made of 120 things. Right. Yeah. But we, but we wow. always have to have something that makes someone be able to fly or stretch or run really fast. So it's got to be an element of some kind, right? Really, they're compounds, most likely. They might be alloys, they might be metals, but don't worry. Elements are good. But in the comic books, they generally, whatever they are, they're not common, they're rare. Yes. And they have special properties, like right. you said, that they want. That's Usually, right. they're strong in some kind of way. Yes. Okay, so one of the early one of these is Thor's hammer. Uru. Uru. Is that how you pronounce that? Uru. I don't, is, is, it, do you have to say it like you're taking a dump? Is that part of it? <laughs> I'd rather like to think of it as the Norse, Norwegian, stately, godlike Asgardian. Uru. Nice. Oh, that was convenient. So it's an Asgardian dump. Okay. <laughs> okay, so... so. <laughs> 
So Uru is a is a fictional element. They don't have and, a lot of. And what about up um, in Asgard? Uh, Wolverine's claws. What are those? Adamantium. Adamantium. Another element. And Wonder Woman's bracelets. Feminum. 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 Okay. Wait, 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 wait. That sounds malformed because elements <laughs> should end in I-U-M except for aluminum. All the others are I-U-M. Feminium. That should be feminium. Well, maybe if you're in Britain, right? Because you pronounce aluminium. aluminum, aluminium. So this is femininium. But I'm this with is, Neil on this one. Look, feminium sounds so much better than what's it called? Fem feminum. 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 They're from Paradise Island. What do they care how we pronounce it? <laughs> okay, fine. This is true. I'm just saying, you know, feminum sounds like something that you would use to, you know, get rid of, like, male toxicity. <laughs> you know, which, it's just like, ladies, is your man an a-hole? <laughs> well, the feminine wait, wait, name... So, so it'd be like a perfume that yeah, gets Well, yeah, you can either spray it on or give it to him in a pill, you know what I mean? Try new feminine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the term feminine came originally from a two-part episode called The Feminine Mystique in the original Wonder Woman television series from 1976 to 1977. Damn. Oh. Featuring a young 20-year-old Deborah Winger, three-time Academy Award nominee, as Wonder Girl. Wonder Girl. Drusilla, yes, uh, Diana Prince's fictional younger teenage sister. Wait, wait, Academy Award or Emmy Award nominee? She was nominated for three Academy Awards. Deborah Winger. Officer and Gentleman. Officer and Gentleman. Deborah Winger, gotcha, gotcha. Linda Carter, regrettably, has not yet been nominated for an Oscar. Hey, man, let me tell you something. If I didn't know and love you as much as I do, I would think you would have an unhealthy obsession with Wonder Woman. Given what he knows about the situation. Guilty as charged. Awesome. So tell me more about the bracelets. What? Okay. Theoretically... The bracelets were originally a symbol from the ancient Greek days. This is based on the Wonder Woman sort of uh, creation anthology back in the 1930s and 40s. So she's Amazon. Yeah, she's Amazon. But these bracelets were a symbol that they were um, subservient to men, that they had been captured by men, they were enslaved by men. But what happened was when Paradise Island was established and broke free, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, made them indestructible and a symbol of the great abilities and powers of women, specifically those Amazons on Amazon. So turn it back, back on, its, on its head. That's right. Right. And so what happened was that now they are bulletproof and they were able to deflect bullets. And if you're skilled enough, you can block weaponry and so forth. And the pilot of the original Wonder Woman TV series, which... I still can't find on reruns anymore. If any of you have a copy, let me know where I can get one. There's a scene where she is trying to make money because money was not something she was used to. And she got on a stage and she was knocking away bullets. People were shooting with handguns. And then some little old lady brings out like a, a Tommy gun, like a submachine gun, and starts blasting. And he's like... I can't find it anymore. Wait, wait, a little old lady is trying to kill Wonder Woman with, yes. a, with a Tommy gun? With a submachine gun. <laughs> yeah. What? What the hell? What episode was that? The pilot. The first two-hour series one. Yeah. And you wonder why they bought it. Please. I mean, I would have... I, wait, wait. The first a time I saw it... A little old lady yes. picked up a Tommy gun to kill Wonder Woman. Well, not so much to kill, but yes, to kill. She, <laughs> she was a Nazi agent, and the whole point was that... Wait a minute. She's a Nazi grandma? Yeah. <laughs> grandma Nazi. Remember that the original Wonder Woman series was World, set in World right. War II. It was World a historical II. fiction. So what happened was that this um, character, okay, uh, Wonder Woman, Linda Carter, needed to make money, and so she was a stage personality, a, a impresario. Like Spider-Man. stage, right. So that she could, like, demonstrate people paid tickets, or bought, bought tickets, paid money, so that she could stop bracelets and have them watch it. And then some old lady came up, said, I, I'd like to try. Right. And she came up, and she had a, you know, violin case, and she opens it up, and it's a submachine gun. Before you know it, she's a like, hi, and, yeah. and, and it was like, well, we do this, and, and, and then she's, oh, you can't do this. Like, no. And then Wonder Woman says, she's not afraid. <gasps> right, and she goes, and she's, I still can't find it. Good. After all glad, these years. Because I don't know what would become of you if you found that. <laughs> I have a bit of physics observation to share that only came to me in this moment. Oh, okay. It's not good enough for the bracelets to be bulletproof. You have to be faster than the bullet to put the bracelet in the way of the bullet Correct. to block it. Right. If you're that fast, you can just step, a, step to the side. 
Yes. Right? Yes. But I'm there, just thinking. There, there are two good reasons that you, you don't... You know what? First you kill Pluto, now <laughs> this? <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm just saying. Why stand in the middle of bullets when you can, you can pull a Matrix thing on there, it and do one of these? There are two good reasons not to dodge, although you can do that, yes. One is that you protect the people behind you. But not right. the people on the side. Ah. <laughs> Everybody right. behind you is great. And that was the second point. Just like in, um, let's see, The Phantom Menace it was, right? When it was first introduced that you could use your lightsaber to deflect blaster shots yep. and use them as weapons against the people that were firing against you. Uh, Wonder Woman can now use those bracelets to attack. Oh, okay. Because oh, I was going to say, in defense, yeah. in defense of the Jedi, mm -hmm. when they use a lightsaber, they don't just deflect it. They send it back to where it came right, from, right. thereby rendering right. the shooter. So Wonder Woman. Isn't that what he just said? Were you paying attention 14 seconds ago? I have a very short attention span. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> right. And one other bit of physics about blocking bullets. Yeah. Um, uh, handguns wouldn't, but a rifle shot is actually supersonic, typically. That's right. That's so if, it's a, if the bullet's moving supersonically, your hands would have to be moving supersonically as well to intersect them, typically. So, yes. so each hand would leave a little sonic boom behind. And so... <laughs> And they, they, they didn't do that. So, well, they, they missed an opportunity. That's true. Yeah, it could yeah, have okay. been real science. That's all. But also keep. I am on. sure they're losing sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we got to move on. Char Charles, tell people why metals are generally strong things. Because so many of these uh, fictional elements are metals of some oh, kind. That's true. So, what is going on inside? the atom and whatever lattice it's in that makes them strong relative to rocks or anything else? Well, that's a complicated question, of course, right? All material No, the question science... was easy. It's the answer you're saying is complicated. That's a good way okay. to put it, right. That was an easy the question, Material science makes it very hard, right? Okay. Metals are essentially, you think of them as many, many atoms that together work together to form like one atomic-like structure. That's why, for example, they conduct electricity really well. And they do those kinds of things in general. But within metals, there's a lot of variation, right? And that's why alloys are very important. So for example, copper and tin are both very soft. Uh, if you actually had a no, tin foil, right? We use aluminum these days, but copper and tin are very soft. But if you can smelt them together, then you create bronze, which is actually very hard. And so the whole concept of the Bronze Age, right, where for more than a millennium of human history, it, the fates of entire civilizations and cultures were determined by whether or not you could get tin and um, copper together to make bronze, was all about whether or not you knew metallurgy well enough. And the Hittites were very important also in smelting iron. Metallurgy? Yeah, metallurgy, metallurgy. Metallurgy, okay. Oh, I see where we're going with this. Okay, I'm just trying to... I didn't know what you said, so I had to, like, translate it. Yeah, I thought it was... Metallurgy or metallurgy? 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 Like I said. Yeah. Metallurgy. Okay. I stand corrected. Okay. Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, okay, so... So tell me about um, Iron Man. He's got, I think oh, he's, no. got, he's got palladium in there. What is that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. There could be some very serious Iron Man fans out there yes. that did not like that react. See? And they're they banding oh, no, together no. now. But, no, no. Iron Man is cool. I have no problem with Iron Man. It's the palladium part. Okay. Okay. You see, so palladium is one of the elements on the periodic table. Yes, yes, yes. And this requires a little bit of history, okay? Back in the 1960s when Iron Man was first created, Uh, the suit acted like a defibrillator or a heart helper because he had that shrapnel in his heart. So it was none of this arc, whatever, right? But actually, he occasionally would actually have to sit down in some room and plug in his armor chest plate, like into the wall, in order for it to get recharged enough to keep his heart beating. That is awesome. Okay, that was in the 60s. In the 80s... Uh, Marvel Universe, this is based on the Marvel handbook of the 1980s. Uh, officially, his armor was solar-powered. He actually had perfected a, an industrial strategy where you could put like little mini microbe-sized solar panel chips into the armor, which allowed him to charge from the sun and allowed him to have the superpower that way. That's brilliant. 
Yeah, it was really cool, right? But now there's palladium, and the reason that came about was in 1989, two scientists uh, in America uh, claimed, based on their experiments, that they had developed cold fusion through palladium. You remember this, Neil? I remember, and the stock yeah. price went through the right. roof. It, it, palladium futures went crazy, but what happened was they were trying to do these, what, what we now call... Oh, wait, just a quick... So cold fusion, normal fusion takes millions of degrees to slam uh, nuclei together, which are positively charged, you want to overcome their electrical repulsion because positive rejects positive. Right. Right. They, right. The opposites attract right. positive, the sames repel. So right. if you can do this on a tabletop without requiring a million degrees, then you can produce energy by not having anything start out to be hot at all. So right. the claim was palladium was one of these ingredients. That That's right. Um, Hans Bethe in the 1930s, who won the Nobel Prize for this, figured out that you could do nuclear fusion when it got so hot, not because it was so hot that it could overcome the electromagnetic pulsing, but you could create the environment for something called a quantum tunneling reaction that would allow two protons to come together and become a deuterium uh, nucleus. Now, what happened was that these and folks... I think Buckaro Banzai, he tunnels through the mountain, doesn't yes, he, in his he car? Yeah. Do, do we agree on that? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. What, but what happened was that the palladium folks thought that they could create this quantum tunneling effect in palladium at room temperature, okay, or close to room temperature, instead of having to go to millions of degrees. And so they thought they did it. Uh, sort of palladium-107 becomes palladium-103 plus a helium-4 plus a little bit of extra energy or something. For the next five years, huge amounts of time and energy and money were invested in trying to reproduce that experiment, and it never worked. So finally, by the mid-90s, people decided that this really wasn't mainstream. This was just an unfortunate or an accident or something that they did. Did but anyone ever look into how much palladium these two dudes owned? <laughs> <laughs> I do not know. But the answer is there are still plenty of people in the world today who think that there might still be something to that cold fusion thing. Nowadays, we call that uh, low-energy fusion reactions or something, LEFR research. And so that's why palladium still holds a little bit of interest in the sort of fictional world of trying to create power or something from nothing. So, so go, let's go straight to particle accelerators. If you're going to make an element that you don't happen to have handy, mm -hmm. so what do we do? We take an atom and we bombard it with lots and lots of neutrons. Okay, And in the proper circumstance, one of those neutrons will stick or a few of them will stick, and then you create an environment where the new element is born because neutrons will transform into protons through specific processes having to do with the weak uh, nuclear force. All right, so, and, so basically, in principle, we can make any, any element we want. So the, the whole dream of alchemy is real today. It is absolutely real. It's just not economical. Yeah. Right. We could make gold out of lead, but it's cheaper to just go buy it at the, at the corner gold That's shop. That's correct. And right. I, yes, and I will mention that to this day, astronomers, we think yeah. that the best manufacturing of elements comes from stars. When, for example, a star goes supernova, the elements surrounding it are bombarded with so many neutrons, sometimes thousands of neutrons per second, that there are possibly quantum tunneling reactions that can happen that will create elements with atomic numbers in the 150s, even in the 200s, only they don't stay around in our universe for very long. They decay almost immediately. So let's go on to Thor's hammer. Uru. Okay. Again, he's, he's still constipated. Yes, without the a doubt. The hammer. Uh, so I just want to say that when I saw the Thor movie, the one that has Natalie Portman playing an astrophysicist. Um, <laughs> you say that like you're angry about it. No, no, I'm just letting people know that my people, my profession shows up in movies. I'm just saying. Right on. Really? In fact, there, there, there was an astrophysicist in Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly McGillis. Kelly McGillis was an astrophysicist? I don't know why. Because she was an expert in the F-14 planes, and right. none of us are. But she was an astrophysicist. I'm just saying. Uh, well, you know, I listen. To the danger zone. Um, um, Nicholas Cage was an astrophysicist in the movie Knowing. In the movie Knowing. Okay. Knowing. It really should have been called Not Knowing. Actually, if you saw the plot, <laughs> but but so we, we we out there. So anyway, I'm watching the movie. And I'm thinking, gee, I wonder how heavy the hammer is. And there's a scene where his father talks about, about Mjolnir, 
the name of the hammer, right? And says, uh, there it is, forged in the heart of a dying star. And I said, I got this. It's made in a dying star. I, we, we know dying star. We're astrophysics people. So I went home, got densities of the densest dying star. So I got a pulsar, dense packed with neutrons. Yep. And I said, I'm going to make Thor's hammer out of neutrons. So I got a, a, a replica of his hammer, measured the volume, figured out how many neutrons you could fit in it, and then I tweeted how much that hammer would weigh. <laughs> and I said, if Thor's hammer is made of neutron star material as implied by legend, it would weigh the equivalent of a herd of 300 million elephants. Yeah. And, and that's all. If but, but that's all. <laughs> it, no, if you take the hammer like that and you dropped it, it would fall through the earth as if it were not there. Cut all the way through the center of the earth, come out the other side. And, and then, then come back? back and oscillate back and forth, ripping out the interior guts of the earth as we rotated. It would not be cool. So then, you must know that what I'm about to say is true. Wherever you think you are in the geek spectrum, wherever you, if you think you are at the top, there is someone at Comic-Con who knows more about it than you do. Okay? No matter who you are, it is like a, a semi-infinite continuum of expertise. And that's within, why I love Comic-Con. Within what a great 36 place. hours. Yeah. Yes. That's just a terrific place. Within 36 hours, somebody tweeted back. Oh. <laughs> okay? Dr. Tyson, you are wrong about Thor's hammer. It's 356 billion <laughs> no, elephants. No, no, I was apparently really wrong. Really wrong? Yes. So apparently they cited a Marvel Comics trading card from the 1990s that said Mjolnir is made out of fictional material Uru and it weighs exactly 6.2 pounds. <laughs> 6 okay. 6.2 pounds. And so I'm saying, I like my answer better. Yeah, but your hammer, you can't use it to actually do anything. Well, well except me. Like, wait, wait, I'm not done. Wait, so, so, okay. So I, I, I mentioned this one time, and it had a, a, like a super fan in the front row, and it said 6.2 pounds. Did they say on which planet it weighs 6.2 pounds? Oh, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Oh, My job. Yes. Yes. We are not right. worthy of that. We can condition. find the planet where the 6.2 hammer weighs 300 billion elephants. And then HGTV tweeted, is it a ball peen hammer or is it a regular hammer? Or... <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> what can you build with okay, this So hammer? here's the problem. I thought it was made out of neutron star material. Okay. But that's not what he said in the movie. He said it's made in a neutron star, in, a, in, the, in the field of a dying star. And then they captured that in the... In Infinity Wars. Oh, War. the guy, Infinity that's War. right, Infinity yeah. Wars. That's With that whole contraption. Right, and the, and there the you go. They used the power the of the neutron right. star to forge the... Gotcha. Yeah. So uh, let me end this I'm first so glad segment. I'm so that out. Okay, end this first segment. Tell us about vibranium. Vibranium. Mm, yes! <laughs> yeah! The black element! <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Vibranium was introduced in Fantastic Four number 52, which came out in 1965. Charles, why do you know this stuff? How do you know? He's, he's making it up. <laughs> no, this is the wrong audience to make that stuff that up. That is so true. Okay? Yeah, All right. you are right. It's a thing. Okay, go. So go I, ahead, Fantastic I, Four number 52. I, own, I own Fantastic Four number 52. Uh, nice. Okay. It, it, that's why I so know. So what does it do? It, it's a beat-up old copy. It smells all moldy. Not what does your not comic book do? What does Vibranium do? This is do? Comic-Con. Okay. This is Comic-Con. Don't you share the love of a beat-up old 1965 comic book. Thank you. Mm. Tell, me, tell me about the properties of Vibranium. Originally, when it was designed, Vibranium was just 
able to absorb any kinetic energy. In other words, it just magically dissipated. So any impact on vibranium made it as if it were never there. That made it like Kevlar. Yes, but better. Okay. I mean, so good. Because it's vibranium. Right. And in fact, uh, the super society of Wakanda, which again was introduced at this time in 1965. I mean, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were so ahead of their time, right? This super society in the middle of Africa. But, but at that time, the Black Panther was not spiritual in the sense that he is now, that he has like the powers of the ancestors and so forth. He was just so well-trained right. and so smart that he was a superhero and he had great technology and he was really talented in that way. But he uh, had problems with this guy named Irving Claw, who had killed his father uh, in a much more elegant way than it was done in the movies. Um, Although it was okay in the movies, too, I guess. Uh, Wait, am, I, am I right yeah. that the movie Black Panther had two hobbits in it? Hobbits? Yeah. You mean from Middle Earth? Yeah. I I think them. I'm right there. I missed them. Yes. Yeah. Okay, now you can't just do that. <laughs> you can't be dropping hobbits in the middle of Black Panther <laughs> and then just try to go on with the show. <laughs> Hell are there hobbits in Black Panther? Well, it's the actors who played hobbits. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay, that's Every cool. Night. That's that's different. <laughs> yes, that's yes. different. Okay. Anyway. What about second breakfast? Okay. <laughs> second breakfast. <laughs> They're taking the hobbits to Eisen. <laughs> Tell me about vibranium. So vibranium later on was actually mixed into Captain America's shield from the 1980s. So it was a mixture, an alloy of vibranium and adamantium, which made it even stronger than pure adamantium, which is what Wolverine's claws are made of and mm-hmm. Ultron's body, etc., as you well know. So modern, modern vibranium, as done in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right at the very beginning, it's claimed as the world's hardest metal, right? The world's strongest metal. It turns out that the strength of it is completely secondary to this amazing ability for it to absorb kinetic energy. That's what made it special. So vibranium is cool, but it was not because it's hard, but because it's literally soft power. The ability to take whatever it gets and be able to spread it out and produce this um, both marvelous technology and also incredible weapons of war. If that ain't a black man, I don't know what is. (laughs) Wait, wait. So, so it doesn't just only absorb it, it keeps the energy and you can do things with that energy, energy later. Correct. Oh, so it's an As evidence in the movie. Energy storage device. Yes. yes. Okay. Very cool. Is there anything on Earth that we know of that actually can mimic that in some way? In any way. The a storage battery. Yes, that can take... <laughs> <laughs> That's all we got. We're, no, we're very I mean, primitive. That can take kinetic energy, Chuck. turn it into potential energy, and then put it back out. Yeah. Yeah. A rubber ball. <laughs> right? You know what, man? You ain't have to be an a-hole about it. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. I'm going to end the first segment on the a-hole comment. <laughs> you are participating in Star Talk Live New York Comic Con! <laughs> Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com guarantees. You know what shouldn't feel like rocket science? Planning a vacation your whole crew will love. With Carnival Cruise Line, it's all up to you. You can kick back or dive right into the fun. Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship. 
from a ride on the Bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at the Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any of Carnival's dazzling bars and lounges and take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family-style Italian. Then settle in for an evening of live entertainment. Whatever your vibe is, you'll come home with plenty of stories to tell. So pack those bags, be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like Carnival Book your dream vacation at Carnival.com. Ships Registry, the Bahamas, and Panama. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Bringing space and science down to earth. You're listening to Star Talk. We are back, New York Comic Con 2019. Chuck Nice, co-host. Thank you, sir. Tweeting at Chuck Nice Comic. At Chuck Nice Comic. Excellent. A Charles Liu. Hello? Do you tweet? At Chuck Liu, C-H-U-C-K-L-I-U. So you're both Chucks? Both Yeah, but he's the real Chuck. No, no, no. We're both Chucks. Yes. Yes. We're like two Chucks. I'm a... Okay. That's how many Chucks. I knew somebody was going to do it in a second, you know. But this is how many Chucks it takes to Chuck that wood, sir. All right, so let's talk about how you get around the universe... Oh, God. Oh, Oh, God. Let's talk about how you get around the universe and the technologies that empowered it. So we've got, obviously, the warp drive. Oh, yeah. And so just just to put some reference frame here, if in Star Trek they did not have warp drives and they were constrained to just the speeds that we currently achieve with our fastest rockets, these are the ones that don't even have people on them, Right? The fastest rockets, it would take them 100,000 years to get from our solar system to the nearest star system. Uh-huh. About 100,000 years, which greatly exceeds the life expectancy of human physiology. Unless you travel at almost the speed of light, uh-huh. in which case everyone else would die, but you'd be just fine. So, That's enough time. So, Star date. So what is warp 4372. Everyone on Earth is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Picard will never die. (laughs) Picard will live forever. How is it that in the series, he's 50 years old, but had the body of a 25-year-old, speaks with a British accent, but had a French name? What's that? What is that? That is the beauty of Jean-Luc, baby. No, no. Today, we would call that cultural appropriation. No. No. If it, you do it respectfully and if everybody is together in peace and harmony like they are in the 24th century, I don't consider that appropriation. Okay. That's a, that's a cultural harmony. You wait till the 24th century. We'll find out. Right. Yeah. So, and, so what, tell me, what, is warp, what is going on in okay. a warp drive, in a warp speed? Most of you in there probably know better than we do. But basically, the dilithium crystals create a reaction through the warp cells which creates a warp bubble which allows the object within the bubble to travel through what's called subspace, which is a sort of a higher dimensional construct 
that our space-time lives in, allowing us to travel from one point in our space to another point in our space faster than light would be able to travel that same speed. So But you're not really traveling faster than light. You're within this little warp shell. That's the, right. authenticity, that's the authenticity of the of science of Star Trek. Right, yes. The, the only problem is, of course, then you have to be able to communicate in subspace. Subspace communications, presumably if you're sending a radio signal, that's traveling at the speed of light, and if you're traveling faster than the speed of light, you get there before Uhura tells you there are Klingons on the starboard bow. That doesn't work so well. So they had to create this subspace communication thing, too. That would get there faster than they would faster during they warp would. speed. Right. So there's Otherwise some... you beat the signal, and what good is that? Exactly. So <laughs> that's not talked about very much, but it's a big... No, it's not. Star Trek. Okay, so how would you contrast Star Trek faster than light travel, to Star Wars faster than light oh. travel. Yeah, I'm making you do that. Number one. Okay. Star Wars travel. One is number one. The yeah. other is number two. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe number seven. The situation with Star Wars travel, right? The, the overall Star Wars light speed jumps and so forth. Unfortunately, there's a lot of inconsistency in how Star Wars moves from place to place. You think? <laughs> Star Trek purposefully made this warp bubble thing to make things as causally reasonable as possible. For Star Wars, I think they just punted. It's really hard to imagine a way where you can, for example, fire a uh, planet killer, for example, in one solar system, send it all the way to another solar system instantaneously, pass a third solar system as you're watching it go by in the sky, and then destroy five planets in a fourth solar system. Right? It's just, I mean, how are you getting there that fast? People complain when I talk about movies that way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. And, and look, we are not even going to talk about the Kessel Run. Okay? Don't get me started. Not even, Hold me back. Not even going to talk about the Kessel Run. They make a mistake calling time a distance, and then they double down on it in sequels? Well, okay. Did the Kessel Run in 30 parts? How many parsecs? 12. 12 parsecs? <laughs> oh my God, we really are at Comic-Con. It's 11 point something. It's under 12, so it's 11 points. Under, under 12, yeah, yes. you did it in under, yeah, 12, yeah. under 12 parsecs. Under 12 parsecs, which is a unit of distance. Yes. Don't, I'm angry. That, that, no, know, let's okay. skip this. Okay. No, I'm not even going there. No, no, that, no. no uh, here, I'm old enough, because I'm older than both y'all, to remember seeing Star Wars in first run, episode one, which became episode four. Yes. When he jumped to light speed, that was freaking awesome. Yeah. No one had done that before. And you had the yeah. blur of the stars like, whoa. And then when the first Star Trek movie came out, then they just copied that. Because uh, they didn't do yeah. that in the series. That's right. Okay. Well, they did better than that. They wound up with a wormhole effect. Yeah, yeah. They, they the thought it up a bit. And, yeah. But the, just a visual effect. So I give him that. That was a very good You know the speed. only other scientific fact I'm going to give Star Wars? What? The Luke sees the double sunset. Ah. Uh, because we know astrophysically that more than half the stars you see in the night sky contain at least two stars in orbit around each other. Binary some star are, system? Some are triple star systems, some are even more. Mm -hmm. And that was never portrayed in, in fiction. But you know the problem with Tatooine's double star system? If you take the geometry of the sunset and where those stars were, the temperature that they obviously uh, do Tatooine and so forth, and you watch the planetary orbit, that orbit would have been unstable. Yeah. Tatooine yeah, would have so you have to be very far You know what? I'm going to tell you something. It's so funny. When I was watching that scene, I felt the same way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Charles. I was like, there's no way that's a sustainable gravity. <laughs> no way! <laughs> it's not. No, no, but Charles, I thought about that, and yeah. I thought that they look close enough in the sky so that that planet's orbit would be sufficiently far that it wouldn't go into a chaotic spiral out of control. I'm going to tell you right now, if George Lucas were here, he would kick you both in the testes. <laughs> <laughs> but it was beautiful. And in fact, there was an astrophysical journal article written around 2005 or so called Two Suns in the Sky. And that was an early attempt to do a census of stars and exoplanets that had double, double, double star stars. systems. To have a double that was sunset. actually a very, very good paper. Right. Yeah. Ooh. Double star system. <laughs> what about the what? Oh, triple stars. 
Quadruple stars. Yeah, they exist. There, there are plenty. You just have to be orbiting really far away. Otherwise, as you orbit, your gravitational allegiance continually changes yeah. depending on which star you're closest to right. at any given point. And that can wreak havoc not only on the stability of the climate on the planet you're on, but also on its very orbit. And, and when an orbit goes unstable, it'll either fall into one of the stars or get ejected from the solar system entirely. And in fact, if you do simulations of the formation of solar systems, you can give a solar system like 40 planets, and it'll settle out over time, kicking planets out, eating other planets down to some stable set of planets. We think our solar system, with its eight planets, <laughs> might have had, don't, don't even, don't even get me started here. So, all I'm saying is it may be... Oh. That there are more planets rogue moving between stars than there are in orbit around stars themselves, ejected from the formation process of solar systems themselves. Nomad planets? Planets without a solar system? What's that? Nomad planets. Yes. Planets without a... Ho homeless planets. Homeless planets. That's correct. Hi. I'm Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> you know where the rest of the bit goes. We don't have time for it, but... Well, our, our astronomical technology has gotten to the point... One, where last, can... one last thing about those planets. Oh, wait, wait. No, where we can actually see these interlopers coming through the solar system. You may have seen in the news that a second such asteroid-like product, an interstellar object, they're calling them, ISOs, coming through the solar system at a weird angle, and we can watch them go by, sometimes even just for a few days, but they certainly exist. And so I expect to see many, many more of those as the years go by and our technology improves. It should and be another very, interesting very... thing, they could actually possibly have life, because we know on Earth, Earth still has retained heat from its formation, mm -hmm. and there are life forms thriving on geochemical energy at the bottom of the ocean where they've never seen never sunlight. Seen the sun. So if you have a rogue planet, there could be an entire biosphere beneath the surface that cares not a whit that it isn't orbiting a star. Yo, that's dope. That's dope. <laughs> that is dope. Charles, at our next conference, we have to say, that's dope, right after a fancy <laughs> talk about that. We're going to end that segment and go into our third segment. Give it up, New York Comic Con! eBay Motors is here for the ride. You saw the potential, and through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. 
The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Time to give a shout out to our Patreon patrons, Heidi Ritzel, Sydney Rising, and Andy Green. Thank you guys so much for helping us make our way across the cosmos. And if you would like to support us on Patreon, go to patreon.com and do so. This is Star Talk. All right, uh, we got to go there, Charles. Okay, no. this whole segment anywhere but there. Yeah, it's uh, no. <laughs> we have to explore whatever science we can find in Star Wars. Oh. Okay. So how about? But let's 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 give it a scientific grounding. Let's talk about the planets that they find them on. So ah. there'd be exoplanets we're looking yeah. for, Lots as well as aliens yes. that they encounter. Like the famous bar scene. Exactly. So how, what's your judgment of how well they did the aliens in that? Um, aside from the fact that almost all of them have two arms, one head, and two legs, and one torso, they did a pretty good job. They're actors that have to get a paycheck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just really hard to do otherwise. Although, with digital technology, now, uh, what's his face? Uh, Jabba the Hutt has a tail, right? right? Things like that. So, yeah, they're doing better and better. I think more and more people are recognizing that Alien life forms are not limited by the imagination that we human beings have. The, the panoply of life that could exist is, was far beyond our own imaginations to be able to imagine them. Yeah. Well, I, I would make a stronger statement than that. If you look at other life forms on Earth, that's true. Most of it does not look humanoid that's with right. a head, two arms, two legs. Earthworms, oak trees, right. octopoids. Uh, mm-hmm. I said that right. Yeah, you said octopoids. It right. Octopoids. Yes. Uh, well, Most life on Earth in the Star Trek looks ne- less like humans that's right. than the aliens in the bar scenes of Star Wars. That's right. Well, in Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, season We're talking seven, about Star Wars right now. Oh, sorry. But in the season seven episode, <laughs> The Chase... <laughs> okay, go. In, in the season seven episode, The Chase, they sort of tried to explain why maybe every humanoid species looks humanoid, right? There's a species that predated all of us that seeded, that seeded all everything. Yeah. Right. So that could have So they're self-aware of how unimaginative their aliens were. Right. And they backed into an explanation for it. That's right. In ways that no one would have ever thought to do for right. Star Wars. But, you know, for Star Trek, the Andorians were very clever. They, they, well, I'm sorry, we're talking about Star Wars, aren't yes. we? Yes. Okay. So, 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 tell me about the exoplanets that they land on. Uh, Why is it that no one ever needs a spacesuit when they land on a planet? I think it's because they're so capable of going at their purported light speed thing to anywhere in the galaxy at any arbitrary speed that they can just find enough planets that everyone lives perfectly and they don't have to have spacesuits. So they don't need to go to the ones that right. they need spacesuits for, right? Why would you? Yeah, there's no point, right? Yeah, it's like... So you can pick and choose, yeah. is what you're saying. Right. Well, here's something that I thought was true and I later learned wasn't, oh. that you can find a planet that has nitrogen, oxygen, atmosphere, so you don't need a thing. And you realize, no, it's not that planets have this random combinations of gases and you find the one that you could survive on. We have oxygen in this atmosphere because we have life. Yeah. So if you find a place with oxygen, given our current understanding of things, it probably has other life there as well. That's right. So That's a great point. That's actually a really good point. Right, right. You're not looking for planets at random mm-hmm. in that regard because oxygen is chemically unstable. So if you have stable oxygen, it means it's constantly being regenerated. The stuff that pulls out, other gets, others get added to it. Great point, yeah. So can you, can you muster any other thing about Star, Star Wars science? Wars? Well, X-wings, they can't fly. <laughs> they just can't. Wow. TIE fighters? They can't fly either. Wait, wait. Plus, if TIE fighters are moving in the vacuum, why do they need wings at all? Well, that's the point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because but they look Wings are cool. completely useless in, in the vacuum well, of space. Yeah. Space. But the, I, I think that what we're saying, seeing in that environment is that the... Uh, 
propulsion systems in Star Wars have somehow tapped into something that's not in our galaxy or universe, uh, maybe a, a force of some kind that we don't really understand mm. oh. that might allow things that otherwise could not fly to fly. Oh. Yes. But what force that could be, I, I just I don't, don't know. I don't want to force that explanation too much. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be too forceful about that. So a couple other things, if you're moving through the vacuum, your ship will not bank a turn. Right. That's not how you turn in a vacuum. Right. And not, I'm not even commenting on all the sounds and explosions in space. <laughs> yeah. That was really, That was good. That was yeah. good. I'll bet you do Wookiee really well, too. <laughs> now, now do a Wookiee banking through space. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give it up for this oh. guy. That was awesome. Awesome. So, Charles, what I think happened there is, with the aliens, yeah. is that anything that sort of looks a little different from human is that's not from Earth, it counted as alien for so many decades yeah. in people's imaginations in science, mm -hmm. science fiction. Mm -hmm. Give it a third eyeball, or give it an ant antennae, or make it green. Or look like a gorilla. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. just put some other feature on it where it's, it's intelligent, but clearly not human. Mm -hmm. And that satisfied people's need for what, how different an alien might look. The otherness of what was on the screen. Yes. But mattered not or, so much. Or sometimes it. it's the familiarity of what's on screen. I mean, when you look at the abominable snowman that you know tied Luke up in the snow cave. Yeah, that's just an abominable snowman. That's not like, that's not like you know an alien. We all like seriously that you it know, belonged on the island of misfit toys with a dentist. <laughs> with Rudolph, yeah. Right. You know that's a really good point. You know the idea that aliens in movies have to be different, but not so different as to be unrelatable to us. That's a great point. See, see, right? I, if I, on the ice planet Hoth, Luke Skywalker were dangled by some amoeboid-like thing, I guess we wouldn't feel so scared of it, right? Wait, wait, wait. So I agree with you, but I don't agree with you. So uh, in other words, that I- That means you don't that agree means you're with you're neutral. <laughs> no, what, okay. it, what it means is you are right. The alien has to have something you can relate to, otherwise you can't relate to it, like E.T. Mm -hmm. Right? E.T. E even spoke a little English, okay? Right. E Ouch. Both of y'all scare me sometimes. <laughs> Did I tell you that E.T. is actually a vegetable? Did you know this? Because oh my God. it can turn plants. Yeah, well, so that accounts for why it has such a good relationship with plants. Because it touches a plant and the right. plant grows. Now, someone said, what? What? Can I tell you how I know this? Please. Okay. Not just, okay. Steven Spielberg visited my office. And we talked about E.T. And I said, look, the thing, is, it's got two arms, two legs, fingers, a head, eyes, nose, mouth. It's human. And so actually, he conceived it to be a vegetable. Wow. That is Steven Spielberg communicating directly to me. I don't know if you First-hand knowledge. For what? First-hand knowledge, not here. Can't get more first-hand than that. That's right. So, But wait, would that mean it'd be moral to eat E.T.? <laughs> No, no, so would a vegetarian eat E.T.? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah, well, he's sentient. Well, I'm going to tell you this. Many years ago, there was a comedian named Paul Mooney. I remember, yeah. Oh. And he used to do a joke. He was like, E.T., he better be glad he didn't show up in the ghetto. They would have put him in a pot of greens and ate his ass. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to end it there. Join me in, join me in thanking... No. Charles Liu, our resident geek in chief, Chuck Nice. I've been your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And as always, I bid you to. Let's try this again. And as always, I bid you to. Thank you, all 14 of you who knew that. Thank you. Um, if I may take liberties, if, may I read a letter to you? If I may. Thank you. Uh, that's so funny. Oh, thank you. You remembered. Yeah.
I'm born Happy October 5th. Happy birthday no, stop. to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, birthday dear. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I don't know why they planned Comic-Con on my birthday. I don't know how they did that. So, uh, at the risk of sounding like it's a shameless plug, um, I, I have a book coming out on Tuesday. It's called Letters from an Astrophysicist. And it contains correspondence I've had over the years with the public on all manner of very personal, private things that I just never talked about on YouTube videos or on shows such as this. And uh, you've never seen me debate a creationist, for example, or a ufologist. I'd never. I, they're in here, okay? I have conversations with them in this book. Uh, someone asked, is there a large, hairy ape wandering the Pacific Northwest? I engage that person in this book. Three letters are from prisoners. One who's serving time, and he won't be able to watch his kids grow through their teenage years, wrote to me and said, I just learned that they like science. Is there any advice you can give me that I can share with them to reassure them that I still love them? I mean, it's so, there's some heart-wrenching stuff in here. What I want to do is read to you the epilogue, if I may. It's very personal, but it's the epilogue. I know, I might. There's some demanding people out there. <laughs> read it. Don't do this. Read Okay. Damn, y'all. Okay, I got to put on my old people glasses, so hold on. Do I have them? Because I'm an I'm a old fart. I'm probably 60% gray, and it's all tinted now, because it's like, I can yeah, see in, in a couple years, I'll come out all gray, and I'll be with y'all. I see some gray folks out there, right there. Okay, I'm with you, okay? By the way, Neil, we call that hair color. Hair color, okay. All right, epilogue. A eulogy of sorts. A letter to Dad. Saturday, January 21st, 2017. Based on a eulogy I delivered to friends and family here in New York City at the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. Dear Dad, thank you for a lifetime of wisdom you've bestowed upon me, drawn from moments, circumstances, and incidences in your life. With your permission, I'll share a few of that, which for me rise above all others. I've never forgotten the story of your high school gym teacher who highlighted your body type as one that would not make a good runner in the track and field unit of class. Your reaction? Nobody's gonna tell me what I cannot do with my life. You immediately took up running you also ran in Hitler's Berlin Stadium for the 1946 GI Olympics. The post-war world was not ready for a traditional Olympics. So this special event contested soldier athletes of the various theaters of conflict around the world. And by college, you became world-class in middle-distance races, at one time capturing the fifth fastest time in the world for the 600-yard run. Drawing upon that example for inspiration, I have overcome the most negative societal forces on my life's ambitions. I've never forgotten the story of your best friend, Johnny Johnson, also a track star, competing in a meet against the New York Athletic Club. In the day, they, of course, admitted only wasps. So athletic blacks and Jews instead competed as teammates for the Pioneer Club, founded for that purpose. As Johnny came around the last turn in the quarter mile, he was ahead of the New York Athletic Club runner by several strides when he overheard the fellow's coach 
audibly yell to his runner, catch that nigger. Johnny's reply to himself was simple and direct. This is one nigger he ain't gonna catch. <laughs> and lengthened his lead to the finish line. What today might be called microaggressions, back then were parlayed into forces of inspiration to excel. From that example, I've used such occasions in my life to excel beyond even the expectations I held for myself. You told of immigrant grandma's work as its seamstress. Grandpa's work as a night watchman for the food service company Horn and Hard Art. A good thing, because he would occasionally bring home leftover food when the money was tight. Your stories of strife were never hate-filled, never bitter. Instead, they were hope-filled and inspirational, conveyed with tentative confidence that the arc of social justice will continue to bend towards righteousness. I carry that vision for society's future into every day of my life. You studied hard in school and took your interest in social justice all the way to your appointment as Mayor Lindsay's commissioner of New York City's Human Resources Administration. Journalists don't write articles about news that does not happen. But the programs you enabled in the inner city, empowering the youths during the powder keg years of the late 1960s, ensured that any unrest or disturbance would be mild. Sure enough, New York was calm compared with what went down in Watts, Newark, Detroit, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, and especially in Chicago, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, for which federal troops were called in to quell the violence. You worked behind the scenes on this, with your only reward, the quiet knowledge that the nation's largest city did not burn during the most turbulent years of the most turbulent decade in American history since the Civil War. Striving to do what is right without regard to who takes notice should be a model for us all. Your stories and perspectives have got navigating people, politics, funding streams, and the legacies of institutions deeply informed my successful efforts to create from whole cloth a brand new Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History. You taught me that in life, it's not good enough to be right. You also must be effective. For that, I now count the formation of that department as one of the highest achievements of my professional career. So dad, this thank you is simply public notice of what I have already thanked you for in life. Bestowing upon me guiding principles for living my life to the fullest and along the way, when possible, lessening the suffering of others. I know I will miss you because I already do. Cyril deGrasse Tyson, rest in peace. October 1927, December 2016. So, listen all, we love you. Comic-Con, there's nothing like a Comic-Con community, a Comic-Con audience, where the biggest fight anyone gets into is whether your cosplay was authentic. And <laughs> um, if the world were run by Comic-Con attendees, uh, it would be a peaceful place, and we'd have technology taking us into the future. So... Um, Yes, it will be. Not, who would have ever thought that the geek set, who was pummeled and bullied in school, would become one of the most strongest economic forces of the land, as well as the people who everyone else comes to to fix their computer? Okay? <laughs> so I, I just want to say the Comic-Con community is a very special community. Uh, I don't want any of you to forget that. Surely you won't. Um, thank you for indulging me in this letter to my father. Uh, he, he was 89, so his death was not tragic. Um, but I, I miss him, as we miss so many uh, loved ones who have passed. 
But you can tell, if you speak of a loved one, you bring them back to life. Mm. And this is part of what it is to carry wisdom, insights, and, and love uh, from one generation to the next. Comic-Con, thank you. Have a good night. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.